is, as we speak, it is Wednesday. Mm-hmm. It's February 2nd. That's right. As this drops, it will be Friday, February 4th. In between, Matt, will be the season finale of And Just Like That. That's right. So as we're talking, we don't know what's going to happen. As it lands, the world will. Um, we are we sit astride uh, a, a monumental cultural moment. What I need to know, Matt, is what is your viewing strategy? The the episode will be released at midnight Pacific time tonight. Wow. What do you do? What do you do? Do you watch it as it drops? Do you watch it first thing in the morning? What do you do? I cannot stay up past 9 p.m. Pacific time, right. even for right. the thing I love most in this world. Uh, so I am going to watch tomorrow. The really tough part is that Michael is gone for a month and we had to have a serious conversation and agree that we're going to watch separately. And that all, that always feels a little bit too eerily close to like, are we opening up the relationship? Which we're not, but there's, there's an awkwardness in that conversation that I just don't love the way it feels, but what else can be done? Because the world would spoil it for us you know, the next day if we didn't, if we didn't, you know, in in the wake of our blockbuster Michael Patrick King conversation, Mm -hmm. I have been barraged with people online uh, throwing unfounded, unsubstantiated rumors at me that we are indeed going to get a Kim Cattrall uh, appearance in the Mm. finale. You were one of these Mm -hmm. people. And Uh, you know, and that has sent me down rabbit holes, but I, the, I, I just refuse to believe that something that explosive could have already happened and been filmed and that we would somehow not know about it. Right. Well, I mean, listen, Michael Patrick King can work miracles. And after having spoken with him for a solid 90 minutes, a, a wonderful, a, like a charming, a delightful 90 minutes, uh, would you cross him? Because I would no. not. That's right. I would That's right. not. I he he'll cut you, and he'll snap you like a twig uh, as soon as look at you. I, and I and I mean that with like with love and respect. He he is he seems like a lovely guy, but also ten times smarter than everyone, and uh, knows immediately how to hurt you more than anyone ever could, and will. So I I think maybe the threat of that hangs over people's heads. I don't know. Well, when it comes to the, yeah, the, the, the spoilers, right? To yeah. the spoiling, to the spoiling of things. I mean, we didn't know about Big. I, well, we did know about Big. Did, I didn't know about Big. I, well, maybe I talked, I talked about this on Brian Moylan's podcast, I guess, because we were talking okay. about Sex and City, but I, that, that was one that did trickle out to them. And there were I rumors see. online, but I, but I, you know, it is a small world and that, that one did land pretty firmly, um, on my desk, huh. well, shall we say? Okay, and yeah, I, refi- I, I gotta believe mind. that the same thing would happen if Kim Cattrall was going to appear in the finale. And I don't know. anyway, the reason I, I bring know. it up is that it's like it, that you can only hear it so many times before you start to to go. Wait, could could that be true? And then suddenly, my hopes are up for something that it would be so life changing for me. And it's yeah. and I, it's not it's not it's not safe for me to go there. I have to protect my heart, you know. Yeah. Yeah. 
But whatever happens will be talked about extensively online. And I'm, I'm starting to come across spoilers, you know, in the morning Pacific time. So so what do you do? Do you watch in the morning? I guess I should. I, 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 I guess mean, you almost have to. Yeah, I almost have to. There's, it, it, the, when I've done that in the past, it's the rest of the day has felt sad because I don't yeah. have something to look forward to. Yeah. So I'm going to have to make a game time decision tomorrow morning, Would you know? Okay. Okay. Uh, and, and what about you? Will, will you just uh, let it happen when it happens? I don't know. I don't know. I'm too online. I, I feel like things are, things are going to be spoiled. Yeah. So we might have to do a rare breakfast in front of the TV. It feels strange. I, I, I can't get pet. Even now, living in Los Angeles, I can't. The idea of watching television in the daytime makes me feel slothful. I can't do it unless I'm sick. Mm. Uh, even on yeah, even on a weekend day, I can't. I can't do it. But you know, listen, these are these are unprecedented times, and we have to make exceptions. That's right. Um, let me tell you what you must do this weekend, which is see Jackass Forever. Really? Yes. I went well, last night and I did not know how much my soul needed it. I truly didn't. What are you telling it me? Is now I, I mean are you not a, a fan of the the show or the the previous um, films? Of course not and I am just so shocked that you are. Nothing could feel more oh off brand. God. No, no, Jackass Jackass transcends. There's joy, there's love, there is there is empathy. There is. Uh, it's oddly wholesome. I I have always loved Jackass. Uh, I have seen every movie in the theater. Uh, saw a preview of uh, Jackass Forever last night, and it I I nearly cried. It was emotionally satisfying on every level. I loved it. I'm I, I'm shocked. I'm I'm sh- I, I I love Why? this. It just nothing about the, like the, this thing of like guys getting kicked in the balls and and, and th- thrown against uh, walls yes. and stuff is is just yes. so not Dave Holmes. But the, there there is uh, at its core there is a a oh God there's a uh, a strange empathy to it. The the relationship that these boys have with one another is aspirational in its way. Yes, of course, they they are constantly hurting each other and, you know, making each other get bit by snakes or whatever. But there's I don't know it's just it, it, it to me exemplifies a uh, positive relationship uh, among males that I didn't really ever see growing up. Fascinating. Um, there's uh, and obviously there's a, a homoerotic side to it. Um, I was going to say, but a part of this has got to be just a straight up attraction for Johnny Knoxville. Well, I mean, obviously, and he continues to be a stone fox. He can wear anything. Uh, he's he's gorgeous, of course. And a couple of the other guys kind of are, too. They're mostly kind of, you know, filthy. But it's also um, it is it's encouraging and it's it it is it's like life affirming to see to see filthy white guys just like slapping each other's dicks and balls around and not yelling at school board meetings right or, or starting podcasts you know what i mean like it's <laughs> like the, those guys could be radicalized now right in a way that they they would not have been in the 80s and 90s when this whole thing started 
And I don't know, there's just there's something really beautiful about that. And I feel like if Ben Shapiro just had somebody just slap his little dick around, we, we the world might be a, a different and more wholesome and hopeful place. This is so eye opening. Yeah, I, 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 I see that now. OK, yeah, honestly, like revisit Jackass. You might you might be surprised at what it makes you feel in your heart. Frankly, it's 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 not even a revisit. It'll be a visit. You know, okay. uh, because I, okay. I have I have prejudged them and that's on me. Yeah, no, there's 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 beauty and joy and camp like it's it's funnier and smarter than it looks like it's it is, of course, aggressively dumb, but also with with like just little little moments and sprinkles of uh, of, of art and intelligence and, and pure joy. I loved it. All right. That's a hot wreck. And uh, another Hot Hot Wreck is a book that everyone should read that is called My Mess is a Bit of a Life, and it is by this week's guest, Georgia Pritchett. She is uh, an incredible, prolific TV writer, was written on Succession and Veep and a ton of other great shows. She also developed and ran The Shrink Next Door on Apple TV with Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd and Casey Wilson. And... She was such a joy to talk to. We just really uh, fell in love with her. I mean, there's no other yeah, way to, 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 to say it. A delight, uh, live and direct from Wimbledon, from beautiful Wimbledon, London. I, I stumbled over it. I was so excited <laughs> to say it. Georgia Pritchett, how oh, are you? Great. Thank you so much. Lovely to be with you. Where are you? Uh, Studio City, California. Lovely. Oh. A place of, of equal beauty yes. and grandeur. Love it there. Uh, yeah, it's not bad. It's not bad. You must spend uh, a good amount of time in Los Angeles. I do. I do. It's it's my spiritual home. I miss it a lot. Okay. Okay. I um would love to get out of this country for a year or two. <laughs> I'm I'm interviewing foreign countries: England, Ireland, top of the list. Mm-hmm. I know. I know things are chaos everywhere. Yeah, we're not we're not doing ourselves many favors at the moment, but. But Nobody yeah. is. What is the latest on Boris? What are his, how is he still hanging on? How is he still hanging I on? just do not know. It seems like there's, I mean, he's been to more parties in lockdown than I've been to in my entire life, which is a little bit uh, depressing. Yeah. But, That's, yeah. <laughs> that is a shame. And and his, his defense seems to be, I didn't know there were parties, even though there, it was just cake and booze. Yeah. And, I didn't know yeah. you weren't allowed to go to parties. I didn't know they were parties. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, are, are we believing him? No. No, we're no. not. <laughs> so we're just screwed no matter where we live due to cowardice. Yeah. 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 So. Well, great. Yeah. Well, great. You know what? We're gonna we're gonna turn this around, yeah. Georgia. <laughs> we we're, gonna, we're gonna steer right out of this skid. During uh, during this time in history, what are you watching? Oh, good question. Can can you just turn your writer's brain off and watch television? Oh yeah, I love television. Okay. Yes, I very much enjoyed a British sitcom called This Way Up. I don't know if that's reached yes. you over there. That yeah, was good, wasn't Ashley it? B. Yeah, the greatest. Yeah, yeah that was, big fan. Yeah, really good. I mean, it's tricky, isn't it? For I'm not in a good space for grueling dramas. I I need. Thank you. I do contribute towards grueling dramas, but I mm-hmm. personally, when I'm watching TV, yeah, I think I need 
just a little bit of escapism and um, yeah, joy. That's what I'm looking for, joy. That is exactly what uh, what we have been looking for in the last couple of years. Um, and 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 I know that I'm I'm losing brain cells because of it because I'm <laughs> I'm simply reaching for the the dumbest and most joyful that I can find. How do you? Where do you find your joy? What's what are your go tos? We have this show. I can't believe you don't have it in the states because it's so good. Called Gogglebox, where you watch a lot of people watching television. Mm-hmm. It sounds very kind of you know art eating itself but right it feels like you know how television kind of used to be particularly in this country where when we had you know so few channels much more of a communal experience so you all would have watched basically one of two shows the night before and so when you kind of watch different people all watching the show you kind of watch it you get to hear how people respond I think as someone who writes TV, it's really good to be reminded of your audience and how different they are and, you know, how wise and clever they are. And Yeah, and how they're really watching it. Yeah, exactly. What yeah. really works, yeah. yeah. They did try it. Oh, did they? Bravo, uh, several years ago, tried uh, a thing called The People's Couch. Oh. And it just didn't work, and I don't... I don't know why that is. I don't I don't know if it was the casting that yeah. was off. I'm I'm not sure exactly what it was, but it just didn't quite didn't quite make the make the jump. I wonder if you just live in such an enormous country. I wonder if because we're just a small island mm-hmm. that it works somehow that the, there's a more of a kind of community spirit or a communal response to a to a show or an mm-hmm. event. Um, that feels right. more cohesive in some way. I don't know. I don't. Yeah, I, I don't. I can't can't explain it, but it just didn't quite click. I speak to you, though, as someone who um, is addicted to Coronation Street, <laughs> Very good. which yes. is which is grueling. Yeah, they torture their characters <laughs> at all times. Yeah. Uh, and yet I uh, I love it. I can't get enough. It's I have to check in. Yeah, it's changed. It's changed when I was a child it was a much kind of jollier more sort of um tongue-in-cheek affair and now it's it's got yeah. some very sort of bleak and realistic and a lot of issues right half the cast is always in prison yeah. it's uh it's it's rough yeah. it's rough yeah but i will stand by it <laughs> i will defend her until i die <laughs> matt mcconkey there is a a show that i would love to well there are several that i would love to talk about that you have worked on georgia but the first one of course is is succession and i was just thinking about you and that you you've carved out such an interesting niche writing about these like hilariously reprehensible people on like on veep and succession and the shrink next door and and you know, for me, when people say uh, about Succession, like I don't, I can't, I can't believe I love it because I hate all these characters. I, I, I weirdly don't connect. I, I actually love them, and I do have empathy for them because I yeah. believe that, given that much wealth and that much power, any one of us would do horrible, fucked up things. <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, you know, and and knowing that as a writer, they say that you have to love the characters you're writing, even when they're mm-hmm. villains. How how do you feel about the Roy family? Yeah, that's a great question. I definitely had a moment's pause when Jesse asked me to work on the show of thinking exactly that. Why do I want to write for this these white, rich, 
horrible people who are destroying our world. But actually, as a writer, it's a really um, exciting challenge to, to do exactly what you say, Matt, and, and sort of dig in to their characters and try and understand them and, and treat them with compassion and and try and kind of get under their skin. And I think, you know, it's much more effective than just judging them or blaming them, I think, to kind of uh, imagine how their minds and lives work is is really fascinating and I've got a bit of a soft spot for Roman because it seems to me like he's he really loves he loves his dad he loves his siblings he loves Jerry you know and he's a a very damaged person and so how can you not feel for him you know he's Mm. he's he's gone through he's experienced such emotional kind of neglect and abuse that he's no wonder he's kind of the filthy little pixie that he is (laughs) yeah i I, and his relationship with jerry of course is one of my favorite parts of the show and jerry just in general i bow down to Mm -hmm. i i communicate in jerry uh gifts uh, quite a bit and i know (laughs) that she was uh, initially conceived as a as a man yeah. But is it true that you were instrumental in changing the character to a woman? Yeah, I I kind of thought we need some more women in the mix. And we've got a lot of consultants on the show. And, and uh, one of them said, well, there just wouldn't be women in this world. And I, I kind of said, I don't know if I care. <laughs> like, let's have a woman. And maybe that will mean there will be more women. You know, it's, it's good for people to see um, women or, you know, non-white people in those roles. And... Um, and yeah, and she's turned out to be a very, very popular character. And she, in what an incredible actor Jay Smith Cameron is as well. The best. Can you? I, I, my understanding is that the outlining process of this show was extensive. Yes. Is that? Am I? Am I yes. correct? We do outline it in a lot of detail um, mm-hmm. because I think we've kind of brought us a, a bit of a. I don't know, you've just come from a writer's room, Matt, but we brought a kind of British comedy writer's sensibility to a kind of glossy American drama. So I think every kind of word matters. The dialogue is extremely important. You know, often this is a a horrifically kind of sweeping generalisation, but often in dramas it's the plot or the action and not the dialogue. Um, You know, it was interesting when we started this kind of bunch of scruffy socially awkward (laughs) shambolic british bunch of comedy writers i think there was some uh doubt in some quarters about if we could sort of pull off a big uh, glossy american drama and you know in some ways we didn't um because we had to get a rich consultant to come and tell us what it was like to be rich (laughs) Because we've made all these mistakes in the um, in the script. So I remember in season one, I wrote an episode about Thanksgiving. And I remember the rich consultant giving me quite a hard time about this because I'd, I'd sort of had lines of, you know, Marsha saying, it's time for lunch. And putting that, she would never know no what way. they were eating or even know where the kitchen was or she wouldn't lower herself. And I also had, um, you know, women 
in maids uniform sort of serving things and that and he was like where on earth did you get the idea that there'd be maids in maids uniforms and I was like i I don't either porn or racist Tom and Jerry episodes. I, like that's literally what I'm basing it on. Um, so that all had to be changed, and and you know, really interesting things like rich people don't have coats because they go from their car to their jet to their building. Their shoes have never touched ground. They're always on carpets. The actors had to be taught not to duck as they got into or out of a helicopter, because if you just do it every day, you just stride out, you know, you're mm. not going to get your head chopped off. It was really interesting. We all had to kind of learn, had, had a steep learning curve about what, what it's like to be a billionaire. Yeah. We're all learning by watching. Yeah. Did it, did it make you envious? Was it, was it aspirational at all? Or was no, it not at all. It seems hideous. Yeah. I and mean, we, yeah. uh, we had this other conversation with the rich consultant who was sort of telling us this story of a family kind of suing each other because a daughter had been given 70 million, but she thought she should have another 70 million. And we were just like, but if she's got 70 million, why would she need another 70 million? And it was like, we were talking in a different language because he was like, <laughs> Because then she'd have 140 million. We were like, but she's got 70. And and we just <laughs> never got beyond this of just we, you know, we're still overexcited that HBO pay for our sandwiches at lunchtime. We're not, <laughs> we're not at the 70 million level. Uh right. and I can't won't ever be there. So it's yeah, I don't I don't envy it at all. Um, it all seems sordid and horrific. Well, it's interesting what you're saying about, you know, th this kind of starting with a bunch of of scrappy British comedy writers, and that it is kind of this prestige cable drama and that there is still this discussion of like, how do we categorize the show? And is it a, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and for me, it has always just felt like a very well told one hour comedy, mm -hmm. partially because the Characters never change. You know, there are certain just rules yeah. of comedy. And then there was the most recent season finale, which I, you know, no, no spoilers, but, um, you know, so much fun of the show, of course, is watching these characters be, be terrible people. But I found, I think a lot of people found the season three finale surprisingly very moving when the siblings mm. came together. I cried. Yeah. Were, were you surprised by that reaction? And, and like, how were you thinking about that when you approached the finale? Yes. It's very difficult. We're actually back in the room now. Uh, so I've just come from there writing season four. And it's, you know, we're so um, close to all the characters now. And of course, we hoped, weirdly, we finished writing season three just before the lockdown. So it's actually almost two years since we were together because we couldn't film for ages and so, yeah, we've missed the characters. But I think when we were talking about their ending, we hoped that it would be moving and emotional and and, and affecting. Um, but you never really know. Well, I say you never really know. In a sort of writer's sort of self-doubt and self-loathing, you never know. But, of course, as soon as you hand something to that cast, anything is possible. So... Yeah, they 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 make it all happen and come to life. What was what did you grow up watching? What made you want to do what you're doing? Yeah, that's a good question because I think I just grew up watching American TV and what I admired about it is and this is kind of surprising because I think uh your country has proved itself to be pretty sexist in the last 
four or five years. But what I admired about American comedies is you have had funny women in the leads of sitcoms right from the beginning, from Lucille Ball and Mary Tyler Moore and Rhoda and Roseanne and Ellen. You've always done that. And we haven't really done that in the UK. We've It's always been men in the leads and the women are basically either nags or slags. They're, they're the kind of sensible wife or girlfriend providing the setup line or the sort of nosy neighbour or something. But you've had this fantastic tra- tradition of of funny women. And um, so, yeah, I would say like Taxi and Cheers and Roseanne, The Muppet Show, of course, fantastic sitcom. Oh, uh, the greatest. Yeah. Uh, and The Simpsons and Ellen and, you know, all those shows and friends, you know, I grew up and and I think I'm, you know, I one of, one of those annoying people who would sort of learn huge chunks of their favourites shows or scenes. And I think there's something about the American language, if we can call it that, uh, that is so right for comedy that so much of comedy is about rhythm and comedy it just works so brilliantly so so often even though I write in the UK a lot I will write in American as it were and then translate it to English because I think that's just how I learned comedy that's the language I learned comedy in and I find it easier uh, despite my very British accent to to write in American right It's funny. The, the I mean, this is in no way unique to me. I, I know a lot of our gay male listeners will relate to this. You know, growing up being a, a, a man who has always worshipped actresses and female comedians, and just being baffled by the idea that women aren't funny. Because yeah. you know, I I for me growing up, genuinely, I I simply did not find men funny, and was just very confounded by oh, by by that. Um, but yeah. it's a it, you talk about this in your book that you know it's a it's a it's a big part of your story and mm-hmm. that you were once uh, asked by a colleague point blank I, I think literally can women be funny so <laughs> can you talk about that stage of your career yeah I mean I I I feel the same I grew up sort of that that was a genuine conversation people used to have are women funny and yet when I watched tv even if i was watching british sitcoms and the women weren't given much scope to be funny they always seemed very funny to me and i just wanted to hear more from them and hear more about their point of view and i think it's really hard isn't it if you and i talk about this in the book as well that for 25 years i was never in a writer's room with another woman and because i love the men I was working with, I didn't really know what I was missing. And it was only when I went to the US and and worked on a beat that I got to be in a writer's room with other women. And I was absolutely astonished at how incredible that felt and how affirming and validating it is to see yourself reflected and to see someone who kind of dresses a bit like you and talks a bit like you and has a kind of similar sort of sense of humor or frame of reference and it just I mean it's it really was mind-blowing and it made me realize how hard it is for people who still never see themselves reflected whether it's on tv or in a 
room or in positions of authority or power. And, you know, maybe that's what you're talking about, Matt, when you say you didn't find male comics funny because they probably weren't reflecting your experience or your feelings because it was very sort of heterosexual comedy, Mm, I imagine. Um, So, you know, for sure, you know, when Ellen came along, that was incredible for me. And, And watching American shows where women were funny and were allowed to be, that's another thing, I think, with our weird British sensibility for a long time. Not only were women not allowed to be funny, but they weren't allowed to be flawed. You know, they had to be perfect mothers or perfect wives. And what's so great about, you know, Roseanne and Ellen and, you know, Rhoda and all of those people is they were allowed to be fully rounded human beings with flaws and strengths and you know all of that and I think that's just so much more interesting to watch and write for um and you know much more meaningful speaking of your book the the full title it's called my mess is a bit of a life which is an amazing title but the full title is my mess is a bit of a life adventures in anxiety can you tell us a little bit about how anxiety has reared its ugly head over the years yeah i mean again i think when you're young you you don't realize everyone else isn't having the kind of crazy anxious thoughts you're you're having for a while and then um i suppose as i kind of got older i realized hmm, i don't think any of my friends are constantly measuring their legs because they think they've got Robertson's giant limb. Um, you know, <laughs> what's what's going on? Why are they not doing that? Um, so, yeah, it took me a while to kind of realise how big a part of my life anxiety was. And then I, I think it's taken me a while to admit that to myself and then to admit it to anyone else. And I, I just felt um that you know partly that as a comedy writer it was kind of my job to be happy and all the time but then I think I felt you know there's a a difference between we're 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 so kind of taught not to ever complain and I think there's an important difference between complaining and just being honest or speaking the truth and I thought you know, in this day and age with social media, it's e- it's easier than ever to kind of think that everyone is doing better than you. And it's just not the case. And so maybe it would be helpful or good or important to kind of be honest about my struggles. And um, yeah, so it was pretty scary to write something personal, having spent my life putting words in other people's mouths and hiding. Right. What was the what was the process like for you? How did, how did you get over that specific anxiety? Yeah, I mean, I think denial is, is something I it's use. Very it's good. It works. Isn't it? Helpful. It really it works. works. So I just thought, yeah, I'm not I'm not going to write this book, but I'll just write this bit just so I don't forget, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. and then I kind of became fascinated with um, memory and how that works and you know when you start remembering something it kind of opens all these other doors and these other memories and while I was writing it I read this really interesting thing that we only ever remember anything once I don't know if you've heard that um Uh, yeah I have heard that but it's yes but say more about that 
So apparently you just, you remember everything once and then after that you remember remembering it. So in a sense, we're all constantly sort of writing our own memoirs, kind of crafting Mm -hmm. our life stories or our origin stories or our anecdotes. And I find that sort of fragmentary nature of memory really interesting. And also the things that you remember, you know, one might be some incredibly tiny, seemingly trivial moment. And then that takes up as much shelf space space in your brain as some huge moment where you kind of brushed up against history. And yeah, I suppose I just wanted to stay true to that sort of impressionistic nature of memory and not kind of imbue my young self with kind of hindsight uh, and, and just try and stay true to kind of things not totally making sense or or not getting the whole picture at the time just sort of kind of observing things and perhaps not and perhaps not for, for years really understanding the significance of them and that fragmented um you know sort of aspect of memory you're talking about does really come across in the way the book is written because it's you know a memoir of sorts a a a collection of kind of autobiographical essays but those essays are often a a paragraph half a page and you know and it just takes up that top half of the page and then you get to turn the page and move on and it's very satisfying as a reader because you really can move through it and (laughs) yeah make some progress and be like look at me (laughs) i'm a reader um but can you, why did you decide to to approach it that way? Well, I love that you think it was some clever choice because <laughs> actually I'm just embracing my limitations as a writer. Uh, you know, I've got a very short attention span and I'm impatient. And, um, and I think also I've been writing scripts for so long that my brain sort of forms things in that shape so in a way it's it's almost like a selection of scenes from my life um uh I'm I like to be kind of economical and yeah it's it's I think that you're right it's it's nice to to read a chapter and it's only been four lines long (laughs) yeah closure exactly satisfying what's um how do you get through the time between it, you can't change it and it's on the shelf? That's terrifying. Was that a nightmare? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I must say, you know, when you're writing scripts, I mean, you just do so many drafts, don't you? And you get notes from so many people. And even on the day of filming, you're kind of tweaking and tinkering. And certainly on Succession and Beep, we would change things during filming. So it was. When I sort of finished the book, I kind of thought to myself, well, hmm, I don't, I'm not sure about this, but, you know, maybe when I change the beginning and then sort of reorder the middle and then rewrite the end, maybe that, maybe there'll be something there. And they were just like, okay, great, you know, spotted a typo on page 88, but good to go. And you're like, no, 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 I need to <laughs> yeah. do endless more drafts and tweaking. So that was absolutely horrifying that, um, I didn't get to kind of pour over it for months on end, um, you know, tweaking till I I kind of imagined I could keep changing it till the day it came out. And of course, that's not how books work. No, no. The yeah, the the amount of time is unbelievably long. Yeah, it's upsettingly long. 
Exactly. For no reason. Yeah. What are they doing? What is a <laughs> what happens at a binding plant or whatever? I, how can that take so long? But it does. Yeah. yeah. That'll that'll drive you crazy. You kind of bookend the book talking about getting into therapy really as a last resort after like try, mm-hmm. trying everything else. Which uh, interesting. I mean, I don't know what when uh, you know in your life that that actually happened, but it does kind of intersect with you then doing the shrink next door, which is about the, sort of the worst possible uh, version of therapy. And I'm, I'm sure people know this, but the shrink next door is on Apple TV and it's based on a uh, you know nonfiction podcast and it's Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd and Ka- I, Ka- I should I'd be remiss if I didn't. Um, Drop this name. Casey Wilson is one of my closest friends, and oh, she's uh, amazing. Isn't it? She's yeah. in the show, and was very yeah. excited to hear that I was interviewing you, and um, obviously raved about you and and sent her love. But uh, d- how did that inform uh, the way you thought about therapy in your own life? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you know, being British, which is just another word for emotionally repressed. Um, you know, we don't really go to therapy over here. And if we do, we certainly don't talk about it. So that's a big deal anyway. And then I think, you know, as I say in the book, I like words and that they're kind of my job. And yet to find yourself in a situation where you really can't find the words to describe what's happening or what the problem is, is a very scary place to be in. Um, You know, it's so interesting what where life takes us because come from family of writers we're all into words and then as I also said in the book what you know one of my both my sons have special needs one of them didn't speak till he was seven so life puts you in all sorts of situations where suddenly the the thing you relied on is no good to you anymore and and that was true of being a mother to my son and also of trying to get help for myself when things were difficult and yeah so it's the book is partly to do with that trying to find the words and yes that genuinely happened and I feel bad now that I've written something about how how wrong therapy went for a man called Marty Markowitz Um, but again you know just as we were saying with succession I think there's a way you could have approached that podcast or adapting that podcast a bit like the Dirty John one, where it's like, here's a baddie, just yeah. just you wait and see what he does. Um, and I thought that doesn't feel fair. I don't think it's as simple as good guy, bad guy, or villain and victim. I think it's two complicated men, damaged men, who came together and this this relationship started, which kind of had lots of good things going for it but it became increasingly unhealthy and and I think you know I definitely didn't want to say as I'd heard people say after the podcast you know Marty's an idiot or Marty's gullible or that would never happen to me and I didn't want to say Ike's a monster or evil I I just think that's too reductive I think um I wanted to sort of approach it without judgment or blame for either man and just kind of dig into how did this happen you know it's a tragic story for both men you know let's let's have a look at how this might happen and 
I, I might be just misremembering the podcast because I listened to it. So obviously, the show is, is is much more recent. But the the relationship with Marty's sister Phyllis, who Catherine Hahn plays, uh, isn't a, isn't really a relationship that stayed with me from listening to the podcast. But it's so at, at the center of it's the show is kind of a love story between you know mm. between this brother and sister. W- was that uh, like an an intentional you know approach? Yeah. Definitely. Uh, I mean, Catherine Hahn is incredible. And I think it's very difficult, isn't it, to show a relationship that spans 27 years where Marty sort of gave away half his business, gave away his home, gave away a lot of money. Those are all quite hard to depict, interestingly, uh, on screen. But I think the loss of his only surviving family member, the emotional kind of heartbreak that that split caused felt much more interesting and impactful and and yeah I think you're exactly right in a way I I sort of approached it as two love stories one love story between Marty and Ike just because it felt like a marriage in so many ways and it lasted 27 years and and I think we've all been in unhealthy relationships, whether it's with family members or friends or, you know, romantic partners, where you can't quite tell where it goes wrong. It seems good. And then you might get a few sort of warning signs or red flags, but you kind of ignore them or you're too busy or, you know. And I think, that, you know, that's what I wanted to show, that it's very difficult to disentangle yourself. and especially as, as you pointed out, he's cut off from his sister, which is the other love story of sort of having this really deep bond with his sister and then losing her unnecessarily and then thankfully reuniting with her at the end, which is a really kind of lovely moment, I think. Yes, it is. So you have been with your partner, Catherine, for I think over... 20 years uh and prior to meeting her i'm curious how you would characterize your dating and romantic life (laughs) a little bit disastrous um (laughs) i yeah i mean i had relationships with men and women i don't think i mean maybe i was very ahead i was either deeply closeted or very ahead of my time i can't quite work out which but i didn't really label myself um and then i suppose when i met catherine i thought okay this is it uh so um yeah it's it's interesting isn't it where we've gone with with kind of labels being something that was quite, you know, they've gone from being something you wanted to avoid to something quite empowering. And now, you know, the younger generation are kind of creating new labels or rejecting all labels. And I, I find all of that really interesting. And But it seems like we're going in a positive direction. Certainly my sons at school are very open-minded in a way that I definitely didn't experience when I was at school. What was your school experience like? <laughs> well, I had this very bizarre, uh, we have a different system for me, but the school I first went to was a kind of real 
sort of hippie school uh, that wouldn't be allowed to exist these days where you only had to go in if you felt it was right for you to go in that day and you just kind of expressed yourself through plasticine and finger painting and just kind of you know didn't learn anything called the teachers by their first names you know smoked with the teachers and things it, it was all um I mean, it was very, in lots of ways, it was, I was very happy. I just didn't learn anything. <laughs> and uh, then I went to quite a rough school uh, and that was tough. And um, I think that was perhaps another sort of reason I, I started on the comedy road because I'm too puny to fight. So I had to find other ways of defending myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was tough. It was tough at school when I was a teenager. It was certainly not what I see with my son's schools where everyone is so accepting and supportive of each other and kind and well-informed and, you know, all those things that, you know, give me hope for the future. Yeah. Uh, School, rough school was rough. How? I, you know, just in a, in a pretty bad area, a lot of sort of poverty and problems, a lot of, it was kind of, I guess white children were in the minority and there are a lot there's a lot of racial tension. There's a lot of obviously sexism. I mean, yeah, homophobia. Sure. Up the wazoo. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, I guess just differences were a problem and it was you you kind of lived in fear that someone was gonna say or do something to you that was gonna be bad. Right. And, you know, it's horrible kind of living in fear for uh, eight hours a day. Um, but I think that was a lot of people's experience, you know, in those days. So, Can you tell us uh, the, the story of meeting Catherine, how that meet cute played out? <laughs> yeah, I wish I had a good one. I think it was basically I she came to a screening of something I'd written. And I, I spotted her and I, she would say I stalked her. I would say I romantically pursued her. Um, but yes, I, I gradually wore her down and crushed her spirit till she didn't have the strength to reject me anymore. It's very smart play. Thank you. So what was it about her that, that drew, made you either stalk her or pursue her romantically as the case may be? <laughs> I think... She, I suppose, because I was sort of felt a bit neurotic and anxious and had, you know, like all good comedy writers, consumed with self-loathing and self-doubt. And she seemed very calm and very confident and sort of sure of what was what. I found that very, very appealing. And um, and also she really couldn't have been less interested in me and i also find that very appealing in people isn't that the best <laughs> i appreciate that quality too oh, yeah man that's a must it's irresistible <laughs> but the, apparently when she decided that she was interested um that did not cause you to lose interest which is which is uh good no that's true yeah i mean i just thought well this won't last so so <laughs> she'll she'll soon change her mind so i'm yeah i'm just waiting for that uh. <laughs> so far so good yeah and as you said you were the mother of two teenage boys which yeah right off the bat not easy uh 
on both sons you describe, I think, as non-neurotypical, which obviously comes with its own challenges. And you've been parenting during a pandemic and working and promoting a book, all of it. So how have you managed? Quite badly. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I think if you do everything badly, it, it's all possible. Um, <laughs> no, uh, homeschooling was was brutal. That was really tough. Um, I actually, before I started writing, I did, I started a teacher training course and I gave up very quickly. I was so bad. So when I realised homeschooling was approaching, I thought, this is so unfair because I know for sure that I can't, <laughs> I've tried. But yeah, that was tough. I have even more respect for teachers than I already had. But um, yeah, I mean, it's great. I, you know, get to work from home a lot, which is fantastic. And in fact, when I first had to go away for work for, for Veep, I remember sort of explaining to them, you know, I've got to go away for my job. And they were like, but you haven't got a job. And I was like, no, I, I have. <laughs> and they're like, no, you haven't. You should get one. You might like it. And I was like, no, no, I, I, I've definitely got one. And they were like, I don't believe you. And I said, right. no, like, you know, you see me doing that thing on my computer. And they were like, playing solitaire. And I was like, not that thing, the <laughs> other thing that I do on my computer. That's my job. Anyway, they don't, they still don't really believe me. Um, so yeah, I think I'm just very lucky I can, you know, work, sort of arrange my work around them and um and their teenagers now, which is, you know, scary and smelly and <laughs> surprising and so many ways. Um and it's funny, my younger son has started writing stories and sometimes we kind of sit at the same table with our laptops and I'll be sort of staring into space trying to think what to write and he'll just be, he'll just have like brainwave after brainwave and just be like going, ah! and like tap, 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 like brilliant idea, then ah! tap, 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 and I'll just be thinking, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's <laughs> it's a nice it's a nice feeling to think that he... It's such a great feeling, creating, create, being, doing anything creative. So I'm very happy that he has found that. He's going to carry the torch. He's going to be. Yeah. You're going to be the very happy, healthy version of Logan and Kendall. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Without him so. trying to kill you or anything. <laughs> yeah. Hope so. Yes. This is, uh, I'm sure, a comedy writer's worst nightmare of a question. But do you have is like does spirituality play a role in your life in any way that gosh i haven't ever been asked that question i think it certainly did i was a sort of lapsed atheist and then as i mentioned in my book i had this difficult situation with the church and they kind of threw me out and so i still feel even though that was a long time ago that i don't have a right to be spiritual or that I'm sort of excommunicated from all spirituality and that is met is not healthy and maybe I should have a think about that um before we let you go I I'd love to hear a little bit about your decision to become a mom yeah that's I mean I that's really there's there have been two things that I have not been confused about in my life. And one was that I wanted to be a writer and the other was that I wanted to be a mother. And 
life has thrown various obstacles at both those things. And certainly, um, you know, living with a woman, that is harder to make happen. It's not going to happen by accident. Yeah, I think it was something I felt very certain about. And um, a friend of ours is the dad and Catherine was up for it. And um, yeah, it's been it's been hard in various ways, sort of just in literally getting pregnant and staying pregnant. Um, but it's been uh, incredible. And the boys have, you know, I had an idea of what being a parent would be like. And that got pretty much scrambled up and thrown away uh, immediately. And what I thought it was going to be like. Uh, is nothing like what it is like, but what it is like is so um, enriching and surprising and challenging and, you know, has taught me so much. So um, it's interesting when you kind of get what you wished for and it's so different than you imagined, but it's, you know, better. Um, Yeah, it's been an incredible experience. What is uh, your son's relationship like with their biological father yeah very good yeah. i mean it's um as you said they're they're not neurotypical so and certainly the first sort of seven years of my older son's life was very challenging and so again that is not how i imagined it would be and uh but yeah that and it is so interesting you know when you have a sort of different kind of family realizing how much biology does matter but also doesn't matter you know but for sure both boys I think take after Catherine more than they take after me or the dad uh her genes respect no boundaries um so yeah it's 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 been a, a great experience and I think um it's you know my parents had some reservations perhaps beforehand but you know they have a great relationship with the boys and and we actually we were a bit short of relations so we adopted a grandmother for them and and that's been fantastic as well how how, how do yeah. you how does one go around yeah how, how I, i'd like to adopt a grandmother how does one yeah, go about should. it <laughs> with the, i've heard there are, there are places you can do it but we just uh you know Catherine's parents are no longer alive and we just think that i think family is so important and uh, not necessarily biological, you know, kind of chosen a family. And we had a friend, uh, an older friend who had not had children because her husband had died. And she was one of those, she's like a classic sort of British stereotype. She'd been a matron at a boarding school and had always sort of claimed to hate children and was sort of very kind of strict matronly woman. But, uh, we had sort of got to know her and we asked her if she'd like to be a grandmother and she just completely melted and absolutely adores them and they adore her and we go to visit her a lot and she's sort of her house is covered in photos of them and all her friends who had spent decades hearing from her how much she hated children are now having to (laughs) get used to the fact that all she talks about is is her grandsons uh so that's been you know fantastic and and yeah it's i think it's good to kind of assemble a family and and see and enjoy 
all the changes that brings to to them and to you and yeah i'm sold georgia pritchett georgia thank, thank you, you so much <laughs> for doing this um the book is called my mess is a bit of a life it's such a great read and obviously everybody should watch the shrink next door and succession which obviously. of course you already are um <laughs> thank you so so much for doing this oh thank you so much i'm such a fan of this podcast i'm very honored to be invited on thank, thank you so you. much for being here thank you Homophilia is a World of Wonder production, produced and edited by Kate Moldenhauer. Special thanks to Randy Barbato, Fenton Bailey, Stephen Sims, Edward Bochniak, and the whole team at World of Wonder. We love you. And theme music by my Ben Wise. Yes, uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at HomophiliaPod. You can give us a five-star review uh, on Apple Podcasts. Mm. Thank you for listening. We love you. We love you.